Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Guy podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, Dave Van Horn. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for listening today. This is Jeff Brown, better known as Bald Guy. Today, we're going to talk with David Van Horn, noted expert on everything to do with discounted notes, both performing and non-performing, founder of PPR Note Company. How you doing, Dave? Good. How you doing, Jeff? Enjoying some pretty warm weather here in San Diego, although not like Phoenix and Tucson, almost 120. <laughs> Actually, it's pretty nice here today, so it's, it's uh, just below 90, I think. So. Okay, there you go. Well, we're going to talk about current trends and notes today. One of the things that I get asked a lot is, you know, what's trending lately, good, bad, or ugly? Do you have any thoughts on that? So when you say trending, what exactly are you alluding to? Are you seeing anything emerging in the discounted note market that hasn't been around the last year or two? Or are you seeing something going away? Are you seeing deals that are particularly good in certain parts of the country? Anything like that? Yes, to all of that, right? So um, <laughs> I know. Probably the big one, you hit on a couple of things, right? So some of the big stuff that's happened was, you're right, the product tends to be more distressed mortgages in certain areas than others. And then you're also seeing the real estate market is doing different things in different areas geographically. You're seeing some stuff with interest rates. There's a lot of interesting things happening. You're seeing things like housing starts are going down, but interest rates are going up. And then there's been some, I guess there's been some good news lately. You know, you had a Supreme Court decision recently, which was nine to nothing in reference to debt collectors and debt buyers. So basically, if you're a debt owner with your own debt, you don't fall under the CFPB anymore, which could be a big deal for some folks, you know. So that's, and you're starting to see that trend where they're starting to rein in the CFPB a little bit, but you, you can see the change coming in. I don't know that it was going to make a dramatic impact on us. It does have an impact, especially for us, because we don't work other people's debt and we own all our debt. So for us, that was a positive trend. Yeah, that's a big deal. The other biggest trend we're seeing is the GSEs, government entities, pushing out product. For us, there's a lot of product, more than we have capital for. So that's always a good sign. And we're moving to a new location, a bigger place. That's a good trend. The, the one that irks me a little bit is the housing start. Is there a real estate bubble on the horizon? I'm sure you probably sense that in places like California, unless I'm wrong. You know, how long will that hold out? Things have been going up in some areas at a crazy pace. And, you know, whether it's the San Francisco's, Seattle, Portland, New York City, are they going to keep rising at, at that pace? You know what I mean? Yep. I don't know that I'm that smart to know all that. But I think the good news is, you know, it's kind of a good environment for business. You know, it will be a good environment for taxes. It's kind of early to tell with some of this. You know, a general rule of thumb is if interest rates go up, real estate prices go down. But that's not necessarily always true. But it does impact, like, home equity lines of credit or it impacts credit cards, you know, that type of thing. So it makes things more expensive, right? A follow-up question, would you do us a favor, to the listener who is a brand-new, shiny rookie and hasn't even bought a discounted note yet, would you, in, in language that would be easily understood by that person, explain the Supreme Court decision 
and the effect oh, wow. it will have on them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. It's um, it's it's not that easy to explain. In fact, we you know we had a law firm actually one of the law firms cited in the announcement in DS News because if you go to DS News you'll see that I'm wondering if I could pull it up, but the we actually had our counsel give us a review and actually a report. So it's 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 a little bit beyond our pay grade in trying to interpret a Supreme Court decision like that. And even they don't know. You can get a sense where they have an idea, but they also have the right to amend it. You know what I mean? A lot of it's written in legalese, too. But the gist of it is is that they were trying to see if PB was hoping to go after people that just because they owned that and treating them like collectors. And what they did was they kind of segregated that and said, no, if you're a debt buyer or debt owner, you're not necessarily fall under the collections side of things. So the CFPB wants to regulate everybody. So what they said was, no, that's a stretch. You guys are going too far. You know, if they own their own debt or in their work, you know, their own debt, then that's, they don't fall under you which was an interesting thing. And it was with Santander Bank, I believe. But it was in reference to, um, it wasn't in reference to mortgages. It, it was another type of debt. But same theory. And we're very similar to them in the way that we buy debt and take title. So it's a positive for us in that regard. But we did get a, it's a pretty detailed report, you know. So it's hard for me to explain it in, I guess, a sentence. That's okay. Listen. I, I looked at it as, as highly positive, and I was astounded by the nine to nothing vote. Yeah, but it just shows you how out of reach CFPB had gotten. You know what I mean? If you really think about it, you have to be pretty far off base for them to do that, right? You know, it's a you're right. It's a big deal that nine to nothing felt that they were going beyond the, their their reach of what that law was meant to be. And what it was, it was a case where they're stretching the law, right? Because they want to go, you know, find more people or whatever they want to do, you know. So it's, you got all that going on there, right? So they're starting to get reined in. And, and you can see Congress doesn't like the idea that they have this, like, endless budget. You know what I mean? Like where they have this uh, nobody's over them type thing. They don't answer to anybody. It's almost like the Federal Reserve. Actually, they have more they have more power than the IRS. They have more power than, the, you know, mm. Because think about it, there's no one over them, you know, which is kind of, it's pretty bizarre when you think about it, right? I mean, who who gets that level of, uh, and I think what the what they're going to try to do is rein them in with budget, things like that. You know what I mean? Here's the thing. Number one, uh, in our lifetimes, how many nine to nothing votes are there? So I, I agree with you that that really slapped them down. Number two, I think it was that obvious. That they were, like you're saying, they were just stretching mm -hmm. to the point that they had to get slapped down. Now, let's let's move to the second question, which is, based on current data, and I know that PPR is, is you guys are on top of the data every day. Uh, what do you see happening to various note returns in the next year or two? Well, there's a couple of factors that, you know, notes are always in direct correlation to real estate values. So, when you ask a question like that, it's like, how valuable is your note? Well, the, how valuable your note is depends on how valuable the real estate is behind it. So the thing with that is, you know, real estate values always go up and down. They don't go up and down like the stock market, though, and they're geographic and they're local because you're seeing areas that, 
you know, look at some areas of California, for example, they're going through the roof, right? And or Florida or or some other pockets, and then you see other areas that haven't really moved that much, or they're just barely back to where they were. So you see that going on, but then you also see this up and down effect. Now the thing with real estate markets is usually there's lead time. You know, housing starts, for example, is a good example of lead time, right? So if if housing starts are going up for six months, and that's hard data at the courthouse, right? So if housing starts go up for six months, guess what, guys? The real estate market's going up. If housing starts go down for six months, guess what? Real estate values are going down. So it's that's a simple one to follow. Now there's other ones as well. So whenever I see a mixed reading like I do now where housing starts have dropped, it's telling me builders aren't confident. There's something up with the financing. It's just weird. They're not confident in the market for some reason. So there's there's things like that that give you mixed signals sometimes, and you don't know how to read it. But I, I, I think you're always going to see real estate values go up and down. You're always going to see these things go up and down. But the returns are still going to be decent, especially in the scratch and dent world, right? So we're buying distressed mortgages that become reperforming. Well, there's always going to be a decent amount of upside on that. You know what I mean? It's not going to be ridiculously low because it's it's not apple pie, right? It's not the A it's not A paper in the beginning, right? So if you take B paper or C paper and you make it trying to make it back to A paper, well that trades at a discount and of course you're gonna get more yield out of that than you would a, a regular mortgage that's never been delinquent, for example, right? Yep. But you are seeing one of the things we're seeing right now, you know, we just saw a very large tape of junior liens, for example that came out a um, major trade desk. And um, I mean, they're, they're almost trading at par. And it was a huge tape. I think it was like 600 loans, which is a lot for a second. And it was, you know, it was probably, it'll probably sell north of 23 million, which is crazy, right? It's par. They're getting almost par for a junior lien, but they were reperforming, you know, at least a year. So the bulk of this is a reperforming junior lien tape, and they're almost getting par. So yeah, I, I think you're seeing really high prices on some notes. And um, does that impact yields? Yes, because when prices go up, yields go down, just like anything. And I think that's a function of supply too. Sometimes when there's less supply, like if supply goes down, you'll see that the you know the demand goes up or whatever. Now, my next question has to do with supply and demand, so thanks for that segue. Um, <laughs> in my own portfolio and for some of my clients who are buying notes and land contracts that we find for them, or and especially, though, for my note investment group, uh, where we buy as a group, I make the decisions there. We've seen where the demand has gone up measurably. I heard you earlier in this conversation say that you've seen – supply apparently go up also what's been the difference are they keeping up with each other well you're you're seeing a couple things happening you're right I, I don't even know that i answered your other question which was really about you know what do you see the notes doing in the next coming years really what i'm alluding to is your margins tend to stay the same or close but your pricing's different and your exit strategies are different so what happens is it takes longer to get out of a deal, and there's more product in the marketplace, and things are cheaper. When prices go up, there's less 
product in the marketplace, but you get in and out of a deal quicker. So not only is there this supply and demand equation going on, you also have this time for money equation going on. So the longer that capitals at play or tied up versus shorter periods of time impacts the pricing too. So an easy example of that is, you know, a $40,000 junior lien that in a down market when it's delinquent, we may pay five grand for that. Well, in an up market, we might pay 25 grand for that. And when you're paying 25 grand for that and you get a hold of the borrower, you're not discounting very much because there's equity. You don't have to. You could foreclose and get your money back. Does that make sense? Whereas yep. when you're, if you buy it for five grand, you could say, give me 20 and I'll make the 40 go away or whatever. I'm, I'm exaggerating some of the numbers, but you, you get the idea of the difference of the down market, cheaper product, could take you longer to exit, right? And there's more junk product out there, or there might not be as much equity back in that loan, that type of thing. Well, now you're in an up market. There's more equity, but you're not going to discount as much. And, uh, you know, people, even in first lien world, you'll see borrowers kind of get, not that you mean business, but they realize, well, hey, if my house is worth 200 grand and I owe 100 on my first, I just we just saw a loan. It was crazy. It was like a $300,000 loan in, like, North Jersey, and there was a $41,000 first. Well, guess what, guys? I don't know there's a whole lot of discount on that. There's no reason to discount it. So, so you, you see the difference? So there's a huge difference in exit strategy, how you work that asset based on the market in a way, right? So, and, and here's the other thing. Even if you took back a property today and it's an up market and you didn't sell it tomorrow and you sold it a month from now, well, it might be worth more in a month from now because it's an up market, right? But I don't think it's a case where one market I make money, the other market I don't make money. I don't, I don't really sense that. The biggest hit is when the market drops. So back in like, what was it, 2008 and 9, where we had a portfolio and the market fell, well, the value of your portfolio went down, but it only went down if you liquidated. Well, if you weren't liquidating, it didn't matter. And it reminds me of a rental property that I have, you know, that's cash flowing and it's worth 100000 The market falls and now it's worth 80000 Well, I'm not selling it. I still rent it out for 1000 a month or whatever. You know, like it doesn't matter. It only matters if I went to sell it. So I think people get stuck on some of the wrong things sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Still making money regardless if the house fell in value, right? So it's as long as my tenant keeps paying my rent and I keep paying my mortgage. You know, I think people get stuck on the equity. You know, just because somebody's equity in their house falls, like my house is worth 150 and I owe 140. Oh, my house is only worth 110 now. It doesn't mean they pack up the bags and move. And I think that's the perception of investors out there sometimes, like real estate investors. They think, oh, their equity fell, so they're probably packing. It doesn't work like that, you know. <laughs> they still need a place to live, guys. So it's it, you, you kind of get what I mean. So, But I think the margins, it's that time for money equation and the supply and demand equation, which are different. But then you asked me about supply, you know, like we have more supply than we can buy. Well, a couple of things have happened. One is supply tends to, especially in a tight market like it is now, you'll see a lot of small players fall out of the market. You're also seeing the product that's being sold, a lot of it's government product. So it's a new stadium. We've kind of grown. We've kind of grown into a larger 
stadium than we used to play in before. There's smaller markets that don't have much product, but then it, the closer you are to some of the sources, the more product there really is. So there's still product out there. It's more expensive, but you're still able to make your margin, if that makes sense. Now, does that mean the little guy can get access to you know, government uh, entities to buy product? And the answer is no, because there's a higher barrier to entry sometimes. But, you, but it reminds me of you know, years ago when the market was different, when, when it's an up market for a long period of time, the product never seems to trickle down to the smaller investors or the smaller firms. You know what I mean? It just tends to stay towards the top. I have my own opinion on this, but I was going to ask you, what is your opinion today of the investing public, how they view discounted notes now versus a decade ago? Um, well, it, it's definitely absolutely more well-known. You're a lot older than me, Jeff, but I've been in real estate about 30 <laughs> years now, and uh, so I don't know what that means. Um, but um, you were born in born in real estate. The um, I, I th- what I noticed was you know just even being a I'm not a practicing realtor or anything. I I still hold a license, but but the the deal I've noticed was for the first you know last gosh the first 20 years of my 30 year career I didn't even know what a short sale was pretty much you, you know it was just an up market all the time. Yeah, you had seller and buyer markets, but it was more on on interest rates and things, right? It wasn't more on um, you know necessarily loss of jobs or stuff like that. I guess since the '80s, it happened back in the '80s, maybe early '80s. But I think it's definitely more well known the distressed debt business today. But we're kind of coming out of that, and just because people know it, like even short sales or REOs, it's harder for people to find deals because I listen to the wholesalers and they're having trouble finding deals, right? So it just shows you that the you know the distressed uh, homeowner product that's out there is is shrinking, right? There's not enough deals to go around, not enough REOs to go around, not enough short sales to go around, right? So you're seeing a change, but I think the difference was ten years ago was people didn't even know what a short sale was or a delinquent loan was or yeah, I remember because I remember back when we started. It was actually ten years ago, our our tenth anniversary is this October, and um, when we started in two thousand and seven, I mean, if I went somewhere and said, "Oh, we invest in delinquent upside down second mortgages in bankruptcy, you want to invest with us?" <laughs> People would definitely look at you like you had six heads. You know, they had no idea what what that was. The general public, especially. I mean, today is a little different. If you said to someone, hey, we manage several mortgage investment funds, people would kind of go, yeah, I kind of get what you do. You know? And I think the Internet has had a lot to do with that, right? The Internet's changed the way we do due diligence. It's changed the information we can get on a property quicker. And I think there's more information on uh, notes in general and disc- discounted mortgages. Uh, I believe there's more information out there. Years ago, there was very little, you know, just seller-financed information mainly. I got my first license in uh, October of 1969, and the first time I heard the phrase short sale, I was over 50. No, there you go, right? So so it makes sense, right? I mean, I was in business for years and, you know, fixing up properties, renovating properties, selling properties. But I, I, you, you, you might have heard of what a short sale was eventually, but you had no knowledge of 
how to get that done. How would you get a hold of a bank? How could you even do that? And today there's systems, right? You got Equator and all these different REO platforms and systems and websites and you know, just think, we, you know, we didn't have the internet like today where you could go to an auction.com and buy a property or a note or, or loan MLS or FCI exchange or, you know, all that type of stuff. You, you just didn't have it. So there, and, and I'm sure companies like mine didn't have, you know, well, you know, we didn't have it either, right? And we were trying to sell products. So, you know, there were times when, uh, you know, hedge funds and companies, they just didn't have, you know, online platforms to sell notes or anything. So a lot's happened in the last 10 years. You know? Well, I, I bought my first note in the spring of 1976. And trust me, in buying notes in the 70s and 80s before the computers finally came in to the industry in the mid-80s was uh, onerous. You you had to grind it out. It had to be like the Wild West or something. Totally. Totally. <laughs> uh, I get asked all the time, how did I find notes back then? And, you know, being licensed and in the industry, and you can attest to this, a lot of times I found my notes, probably eight out of ten times, Dave, by simply answering my phone because people mm-hmm. knew I, I did it. So I, I was in a, 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 not a unique situation, but I was, I was in a small group, that's for sure. Well, well, there's a difference, too, between the seller finance world and the institutional world. So I think the seller finance world was there. You know, it was still... And I think it was more common in deed of trust states, especially in the South. Because I remember traveling to, like, Florida and picking up a newspaper. And there'd be notes for sale in the newspaper, right? Well, up in the Northeast, that would never happen. You would open up, because it was a judicial state. You know, you'd open up the newspaper. You might see, you know, bank-owned property for sale or or houses for sale or foreclosure auctions. But down south, you open up the paper, it's like, hey, there's a note for sale. You know, well, we, we just didn't have that, you know. But, yeah, certain certain areas I think it was more common, too, you know. I bought notes for 38 years, Dave, before I bought an, one note from an institution. So there you yeah, go. I think I got into the institutional side just by accident, really, to be honest with you. The fact that we were proximity to New York had a lot to do with it. I remember a lender, you know, the first person that I was introduced to that was buying, um, actually raising money for institutional notes, came and spoke at our real estate investment group we had. It was like a novel idea. Oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, it was like that. If it wasn't for the fact that there was probably so much product in Manhattan, that would have never happened, right? Well, and I'll make the prediction that back then when you were at that meeting, Dave, you were one of either the only one or one of two people that saw the opportunity. Yeah, I don't know if that was smart or not. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But now, you know what? You're right. Like if uh, you know, it's like anything. If an opportunity comes your way and you're not ready to receive it, right? It just it just goes by you and keeps going, right? But um, and you're right. In the beginning, I didn't do anything. I think for three years, I didn't do anything after that guy first spoke, and my one partner did, and um. We're probably lucky he did, and then then we tried it out. We raised some of our own money, you know, put our own money together, and you know, try, tested out the model, and then it seemed to work. And then we we're like, oh, let's get bigger and bigger and bigger, and look at today, right? We're pretty large today. I'm, well, we're actually small in some regards, but we're large compared to to some folks, you know. Man, 
you have knocked it out of the park today, Dave, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure, Jeff. My pleasure. People, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, Dave Van Horn.